What do CEOs need to know about sales these days? A lot. Outdated sales strategies and tactics plague most companies today. Listen to what innovative CEOs and experts have to say about how to change all that with Sales Talk for CEOs. Welcome to Sales Talk for CEOs. Today's guest just recently appeared on CNBC. It's not often that I get to uh, talk to a CEO who's appeared on television, so I'm pretty excited about that. But Jonathan Silver was invited to speak on Squawk Box because he's in a partnership with CNBC, uh, the National Retail Federation, and his company, Affinity, together. They've put together something called Retail Monitor, and it's reshaping retail intelligence. And I just find this absolutely fascinating because all of us use credit cards, right? And now you're going to learn about how they're getting data about our spending that's pretty much in real time. So I'm really excited to uh, introduce to you, Jonathan Silver. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me, Alice. Well, tell us just a little bit about Affinity Solutions before we dive back into history and learn how you founded the company. Sure. So Affinity Solutions, and we call ourselves Affinity for short, um, is the leading consumer purchase insights company. We have, uh, and I'll go back in time as to how we have this incredible data asset, 140 million people, cardholders. Uh, we get their credit and debit card swipes every single day. I know it sounds like Big Brother, but I'll explain how the data is permissioned uh, and it's opted in and all of that in a moment. But all of that data, 140 million people, 8.8 .8 billion transactions. We track 4,200 retailers, travel hospitality companies, restaurants, telecom firms, et cetera. Um, that collective source of insights is extremely valuable to so many companies. And so today we are the consumer uh, purchase insights partner to the major consulting firms, <clears throat> um, Deloitte, McKinsey, Bain, Accenture, KPMG, BCG. Uh, we provide our data to investment firms that use not directly, but through partners who use it to make investment decisions. And a lot of our data can also be used to revolutionize and is being used the way media is bought and sold. So imagine, uh, a, an advertiser being able to see, let's say Burger King, uh, how many people that watch Seinfeld at 7 p.m. on a Tuesday on TBS versus The Voice at 11 p.m. on Friday on Fox. Nielsen, who rates all these shows, might say, yeah, they look similar. Our data would be able to show, you know what? The Voice has twice the percentage of people who go to quick service restaurants. So if you're Burger King and you sell hamburgers, you kind of want to advertise where people go who eat hamburgers. So that uh, that's just one application where our data can be used to improve more of an outcomes-based view of how media is bought and sold. So this, this repository of data in a world where purchase-based insights or insights in general, but about how people spend, it turns out is extremely valuable for a number of different applications. Yeah. And I love this, you know, because 
you were able to collect all the data because of these rewards programs. So I know you're going to tell us about how that came about, but I just find that fascinating. Of course, I have those rewards programs on my credit cards too. So we're going to learn a lot more about this, but let's rewind back to when you started the company, what were you doing before you started the company? And then how did you get this idea that you're thinking, okay, I'm going to start this company that's going to, you know, collect data and build rewards <laughs> programs, or maybe that wasn't the beginning, right? So tell us about that. Yeah, it, it was a crazy journey. Um, you know, as I always say, I'm not, I'm not a typical serial entrepreneur, and you'll hear in a moment why I'm saying that. <clears throat> I graduated from Wharton undergraduate and an, uh, with an engineering degree as well. And um, I, I realized I was unemployable and that no one would want to, <clears throat> should want to have me for too long as an employee. And I decided I needed to create my own destiny, my own environment as an entrepreneur. I did study entrepreneurial management, so at least I knew generally that that was something I eventually wanted to do. Um, and so I started down a path uh, with different uh, entrepreneurial ventures. And one of them um, was a merchandise business. Uh, and in particular, we had children's products that we were selling. And uh, we were you know, selling these products. One in particular was uh, you know, a potty training product. And I started getting letters. Uh, As we a selling, mom, I can appreciate that. <laughs> well, to be honest, it, the particular product was an inflatable potty. So if you're on the road and you gotta, your kids got to go, you inflate the potty and you put liner in it like a little mini garbage bag. The kid, your kid goes and then you throw out, you tie up the liner. And amazing. Can, yeah, amazing. So I started getting all these letters where people were sharing, you know, it was, it was less about, hey, I want to order some product. It was like, I was talking to my friend, she wants some. It was about sharing of ideas. And I had this uh, thought process like, wow, you know, new parents, mothers in particular, really, they share ideas. That's how they decide what to buy, where to go. They rely on each other. And I thought, what if we could create a membership organization for mothers with young children? Uh, we ended up calling it Family Network, but it was a membership organization that was sort of a hybrid between sort of like what AARP is for senior citizens in the sense of offering discounts on merchandise and, and, uh, and, and, and services and so on, but with an underpinning where parents could meet one another. We had workshops, we had, you know, these were the early days of the internet. So ways of parents to connect with one another. And so I, I just said, what if we launch that as a membership organization for new parents? So we did. Um, unfortunately that was not successful and it wasn't successful because you know, primarily because to get to scale, which is required for that kind of business model to work, whether the business model, yeah, you can charge a fee to the end user, which we did, but you were always spending more money to acquire a customer than uh, the fee that you'd get to join. $9.95 would be the fee, and it might cost us $30 or $40 to acquire the customer. That doesn't work unless you can make money on with advertising or selling merchandise. Advertising ended up being uh, not viable because we weren't at scale and we really needed to have tons of venture capital to grow the business to a level that advertisers would take it seriously and it wasn't enough to sell merchandise we just couldn't get it to to work <clears throat> so that didn't work and it was a tough time for me at the time um so i could have said hmm maybe i'm not maybe i shouldn't be an entrepreneur maybe i should go back to work but i decided that uh entrepreneurship was my destiny and uh, the reality is this bundle of services and benefits and discounts and ways to meet on, they were still really valuable. It's just that the direct-to-consumer business model wasn't working. So I decided to reinvent the business. 
and take that bundle of services and benefits and bring it to other businesses that had customers that had young children that could use that to deepen their relationship with those customers to then you know, sell more of their products. And I thought about financial services companies, insurance companies. And I remember my one of my first big sales was going into Capital One Bank and selling them 50,000 memberships. And we customized it instead of family network, it became the Capital One family network. And they paid us 50, uh, sorry, $387,500. I remember the check that I got <laughs> for 50,000 memberships at $7.75 a piece. And that was like, wow, this is a lot easier than signing up members one by one and having that acquisition cost. Now we could get a company like a Capital One or Prudential yeah. to buy it wholesale, we'll tailor it to them and they can give it away to their customers. So amazing, that- amazing. I'm just going to pause you for a second because yeah, I love your ingenuity. You know, you failed and you're like, yep, this isn't going to work. Cost us $30 or whatever to acquire and we're only getting $9.95. But there's this really interesting piece of this, which is this network we've built, right? With these people telling each other about it. And they like the membership aspect and they like the discounts and all of that. So what do we do instead? And going to the credit card companies, I think that's just genius. Well, and what I didn't, you know, if you think about a credit card company, it's a fairly transactional relationship, right? Right. There's not a lot of emotion, right? You use your card, you swipe it. Here was a chance for Capital One and other companies to take this bundle of services and make their card more relevant by offering discounts on things that parents with young children really need. But then the banks uh, started saying, well, that's great that you have this bundle of services for new parents, but what about other segments of our customer base? What about seniors? What about college students? And so we began to think, well, if we're that good at coming up with this bundle of services (laughs) for this life stage or this life event, maybe we could do the same for others. And we did that. And actually the original name Affinity Solutions was, was these bundles or these solutions geared to different life stage and lifestyle segments. And um, so we think of the word affinity as what floats your boat, what is your passion, your interest. Um, and so if you have kids, that's one of your affinities. It's not your only affinity. If you're a senior, you might think of things related to that life stage. And I remember one of the, and I'll move on to where we where we got closer to where we are today, but I remember one bank, Chase, called us up one day, called me up, one of the executives and said, we just acquired a credit card portfolio from another bank, U.S. Bank, um, that used to be the credit card that had the REI retail name on it, the REI credit card. REI is an outdoor products retail. But they lost the name on the, the right to use that name on the card. All these people that signed up for the REI credit card were now going to get new plastic that was going to say Chase on it. And that's the last thing they signed up for. So Chase called me up and said, hey, you know how you created that bundle for families and collagen, can you do something for outdoor enthusiasts? Can you create something? So we went ahead and signed up 140 retailers offering discounts on hiking, climbing, canoeing, camping, all this stuff, and created a service because usually people, when they uh, bought some of these things, it was usually around when they were planning a trip. So we had a trip planning service. You could uncheck whether you have the backpack and the stove, and if you have the sleeping bag and the tent, the backpack and the stove, we would steer you to all the retailers that would offer discounts So that was the kind of things that we were doing. And very quickly, um, as we were dealing with these banks, I was like, this is great. But for us to really grow, I saw that the real center of gravity, the real focus within these banks 
was their rewards programs, mm. you know, where you got points and miles and cash back. And so I said, well, what if we could take all these deals, the retailers that were offering coupons and get them to fund the rewards program? What if we could get them, if we could tell those retailers, we're going to market you to all these credit card holders, but you have to agree when they come in and swipe the card that you're going to fund a 10% cash back or the equivalent in points or miles. And that took off because now the banks were like, hey, that other thing you were doing with life stage lifestyle segments, that's pretty cool. But rewards, that's the reason why a lot of consumers either choose a credit card or debit card. Early days was all credit card um, or use the one in their wallet. The average person has five or six cards in their wallet. The quality of the rewards program. But how do you differentiate if you're a bank? You can only afford <clears throat> to fund so many points, <clears throat> excuse me, or miles or cash back because of their P&L. So the idea of OPM, other people's money, the retail is funding it was a huge deal. So we launched that as merchant funded rewards um, or as it became known also card linked offers because the experience would be Alice, you know, logging into online banking or getting an email, seeing a 10% off discount at Home Depot, clicking on the offer, attaching it to your card. And then automatically you'd go into a store, swipe your card and without having to present a coupon or show a, a mobile uh, coupon code, you would get that discount or points or miles added to your account automatically behind the scenes. So they called it card linked offers because it was attached to your card. Yeah, I That's, love that. All right. Let me yeah. pause you there for a second because I want to hear about who did the selling during these early days, right? How did this all happen? So you're running the company, you're coming up with all these great ideas, and I imagine you were doing most of the selling. You're the one who wa walked into Capital One, right? You're the one who negotiated with Chase. So tell us about how all the sales went in the early days. Sure. So yes, I was the chief seller and you know, fast forwarding, I was the chief seller for many years and I'll get to as affinity matured, how that changed, but I was the chief seller early on. And I think, you know, this is where I think uh, folks in your audience will, will all hopefully nod their head. Yes, I was the chief seller, but you need, you need a team, right? And um, one of the critical team members that I have, and I just saw him, he was popped his head in, was our original chief technology officer at the time, because he could take my crazy ideas and he could not only execute on them or try, um, but he could also articulate uh, with me if I was in a sales meeting, he, he would be able to articulate how we would execute it, how a bank could integrate with our uh, technology platform at the time, um, how the rewards would be delivered, how they'd have to send us the data to for us to track because uh, banks can't just simply go into their data and identify those Home Depot transactions or, or, or Walmart or Burger King. In order for us to reward people that shop at those retailers, we had to make sure we identified every one of those transactions at those participating retailers. Banks can't do that. So he he was able to explain in a way that was it made sense how they would have to send us the data, how we would send the credits back to the bank. So that was a partnership between me and a chief technology officer that was extremely valuable and other partnerships that I built over time. I was the chief seller, but I always had a solutions architect or technical person by my side. Yeah. And that's so important, I think, in the early days as well, uh, because you can't you can't be everything, right? There's just too much. And of course, uh, having someone who's a subject matter expert to explain to another you know, person who speaks that same language is always so helpful. So the two of you were out 
meeting with these financial institutions, these credit card companies and making it all work. And you were coming up with better and better ideas. You got it to the rewards program, which, you know, I, I was just thinking about how Capital One follows me all over the internet, right? <laughs> and helps me buy stuff and gives me rewards and offers. Uh, so I know we've all seen that. So uh, at what point, about how many years in, and at what point did you finally say, gosh, if we're going to grow bigger than this, we're going to have to have some more salespeople or people to help us onboard or, you know, others who are going to be customer facing. Sure. And it was really the, the switch over to rewards that required a lot of the technology uh, more so than when we were just offering these life stage lifestyle bundles, because it was really a, a fairly deep technical integration with us getting their data, us doing all the tracking of spend, us delivering credits back. But as time, so as time went on, uh, we grew that business to over 3000 banks. And the value proposition to the retailer, to your point about tracking, is they, they were interested in the ability to deliver offers in the online banking channel, in email, meaning the retailers and restaurants, based on the consumer's transaction behavior. So Macy's would say, oh, I'd love to reach people who shop at Nordstrom and JCPenney's and Kohl's. So that was what's appealing to them. So we were able to target their offers more efficiently and also offer them some insights. But one event that happened that was fairly disruptive for us is a new competitor came in several years later and it was around 2008 2009 when their the whole you know financial crisis occurred and uh, there was you know after that uh, the Dodd-Frank Welfare Reform Act which had the effect uh, there was one particular amendment within that called the Durbin amendment of reducing the fees that banks were getting for uh, from retailers that accepted debit cards and that was a big part of our, our client base and so a competitor came in and decided to not charge the banks anything except for a setup fee where we were getting most of our revenue from the banks. That was a very disruptive move because they were trying to set it up as an ad network where all the money they would make was from the retail side. And we were making more of our money from the bank side. So I started, we started to look at that. It was very disruptive. Uh, we started to see our, our uh, prices get compressed because, you know, we can talk about how great we are, but against free, that's a hard thing to sell against. Uh, so we we started to go down a path where I really appreciated the value of the data, right? The data had so much more value than what we were using it for only, right? We were only using it to identify people that shop at certain retailers. We we're using it to let the retailers target their offers in the bank's loyalty program more effectively. We were using it to give some rudimentary insights. But what we could use it for, if only we had the rights, could be to, you know, provide, you know, Insight services today, I'll just fast forward. We are the purchase insights partner for the major consulting firms, Deloitte, Accenture, Bain, McKinsey, KPMG, BCG. We uh, just are the, the ultimate vision is to have products where we can deliver insights and marketing solutions to various stakeholders that serve the retailer or serve the restaurants or serve the these uh, travel hospitality companies. And among the stakeholders that serve them, consulting firms was one key category. And so they rely on us today uh, for these purchase insights. We give them very granular, aggregated outputs, all anonymized, all aggregated, but that they can in turn use to help their clients figure out where to open stores, how to allocate their capital between brick and mortar and e-commerce. Should they invest more in Chicago versus Boston because there's more headroom there? This data set, I started to realize if only we could get it out of just the loyalty program, 
would deliver our underlying thesis is visibility that retailers, unless they have visibility on what their customers are doing, not just customers, but prospective customers outside their stores, outside their websites, they would be at a major disadvantage. And I said, if only we could have it, we could deliver to so many different stakeholders with that thesis of showing visibility. And so we went down a journey. It took us a long time. Um, we struggled for a number of those years because we, we went out and raised capital from a private equity firm. We raised ultimately about $50 million of total capital, which carried us to the point where we, get, we got the rights from those 3,000 banks, many of which were through intermediary relationships that we have, processors. But eventually we got those rights. And the, what was in it for the banks was that every dollar of revenue we generate from insights and marketing solutions that we sell into consulting firms, we sell them into marketing you know, ad agencies like Omnicom, we sell them into marketing service providers like Experian and Epsilon. I'm sure they'll appreciate me mentioning their names. Um, we sell them into ad tech companies, investment firms through intermediaries. All of that revenue we take a percentage of and deliver it back to cardholders in the form of more offers. <clears throat> so this is a critical piece of the puzzle because we, you know, banks can't just sell their data. Um, we wanted to anchor it on the loyalty programs because we are very privacy centric. We wanted to make sure the consumer was permission their data and opted in. The data, of course, is always aggregated and anonymized. You can never reverse engineer it to a person. But we wanted value going back to the consumer for the use of their data. And that virtuous circle where every dollar of revenue that we generate and all of the, all of the services get us deeper with the retail side of our business. And that's important. But the real value is every dollar of revenue we take a chunk of and give it back to cardholders in a way that drives more top of wallet behavior for the banks, right. we tailor it. So we're really, that journey took about seven years from, well, let's see, 2010 is when we really went down that path. By 2017, we really got all those right. So that was an incredible journey. It was painful, but then our business started to take off. So did you hire the salespeople while you were getting all that figured out? Or did you wait, you know, what did that look like? You're doing this selling. Now you've got all these other things, right? You're growing and there's more and you started to pick up a seller or two. Tell us how that went. And, you know, it sounds like there was a lot to do. So how did you get these sellers to learn? You know, how did you hire them and how did you get them to learn all of this? Yeah. So there was a few dimensions to the journey that are worth highlighting relating to your question of how we handled the sales piece. One is the company, when we were just in the rewards business, we did very bespoke. Uh, it was very service oriented because we were dealing with big financial institutions. As we started moving into the data business, we had to be much more productized, much more product centric, standardized. That was a journey in and of itself, uh, number one. Number two, we, and this is more of a personal commentary, you know, as this as the main seller, I wasn't the only seller, but as the guy that drove the big deals, I realized that there's no way we're going to ultimately scale until I can let go. And this is a personal journey that's been, I'm sure, you know, folks on the call, on the uh, podcast who are business founders, you know, you, you start to become the, and I, I still am the chief evangelist, but you have to let go. And even, you know, up until last year, like I'm doing these diving catches and bringing in deals, you know, this year we'll do $86 million of revenue. We're running We'll be running at about 100 million of revenue in fourth quarter. We have 160 employees. 
we would never be able to do that if it was just me selling. So there was, as the company was transitioning from a services kind of custom agency-like approach to a more you know standardized product-centric approach, we needed new talent. We needed new talent on the products, certainly product side, engineering side, but we needed salespeople that understood the domains we were selling into. And um, so that's that that has been today. I'll just give you a sense of what the organization, if you don't mind, I'll yeah. give you a sense. This year, uh, this is another learning. We verticalized our sales strategy. We have three main verticals. We have some less important ones, but the three main ones are media and marketing. And we have someone that leads that vertical. Those are advertising agencies, uh, top tier media companies like NBC and Disney, uh, ad tech companies, uh, walled gardens like Facebook and Google. Um, that's all media and marketing businesses. That's one vertical. Another one is consulting firms, uh, which includes investment firms, but consulting firms is the primary, those that I mentioned earlier. That's number two. And number three is financial institutions, which is the core of our data, our, our source of data. <clears throat> those three are primary verticals. And previously we had a single sales team. We decided to verticalize it to have experts that really understood those domains. Uh, they're the ones defining the strategy. They're the ones who are doing the business development to build the partnerships. And there are people there that can sell as good or better than me. Well, maybe not better, but as good. No, I'm kidding. They really know that business. Then separately from those three vertical leads, you can call them lines of business leads, strategy leads. We have a sales team that partners with the vertical leads for those that are more complex, those that are more bespoke, where you don't have something off the shelf to sell, which is a lot of what we do in media marketing, they're the vertical, the BD leads within the verticals will drive it and sales will be part of the sale. And there are others more standardized selling where sales will lead. So we've got these three verticals um, and then we have a sales team and a client management team that partner with those verticals to either sell new logos <clears throat> or upsell existing clients. Yeah. Wow. So you didn't start with that many people though in sales. So you must've built up to it over the many years, right? So do you remember hiring the first salesperson and you're like, okay, I'm going to have to get somebody else to learn to sell like I do. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think in the beginning it was tough because they never, you know, you never, first of all, you know, you're an early stage company. You don't have a big brand name in the marketplace. So you know, the old story, you know, A players are critical. And today, you know, I'd rather have, you know, five A players than 20 B players, right? right. And that applies, certainly in sales, it applies in other other domain uh, dimensions of the company as well. Uh, but in the early days, how do you get an A player to join you, right? Because you don't have the brand. Now we do. We were on CNBC on Monday, as you mentioned. We have the National Retail Federation endorsement. For me and my career, it doesn't get much better. But in the earlier days, it's it's uh, was difficult, so we didn't always get A players, and oftentimes we got B players. And so I would, uh, you know, the tendency that I had at the time was to micromanage, which wasn't great. And at a certain point, when you're micromanaging, but that's you were, not uncommon with founders, right? And they're doing all the selling, and then you don't like, oh, I nobody ever taught me how to hire and train a seller to do a job, right? So you have to learn it as you go. So you tend to micromanage them. Right. And being a great seller doesn't mean you're a great sales manager. Um, That's right. Over time, over time, I had to learn those skills. <clears throat> but I remember one situation early on <clears throat> where we it was a client who who um, 
was an early adopter. And this is sort of a separate point I was going to make, which is, you know, early days, they don't know the company, clients uh, who are risk averse, particularly banks, how do you get them to say yes? And you really want to find those, not, to, not just the banks, but more the people within the banks that are entrepreneurs um, who are willing to take a risk and be early adopters. Turns out one of those early adopters that I uh, that we got ended up becoming our head of sales and the banks that we hired nice. and formed the client. The client didn't appreciate it, but they understood that it wasn't like we poached him. He, he was a willing participant and joined us. He was a phenomenal salesperson and we he brought in many banks. Um, so sometimes you get lucky, but in the early days where we didn't have a brand and, you know, A players want to join, you know, generally proven entities, um, although you can always find those that are entrepreneurial and want to take risks, but it becomes more of a challenge. So, yes, I was more micromanaging. We found this uh, one success story and, and a couple of others. And uh, we, you know, we, we grinded it out. And, uh, and then eventually, as we started to build a, a name for ourselves, we were able to attract more of those top uh, salespeople. That's fantastic. Yeah. I know that um, it is hard when you're starting out, right? And you don't have a name and you are trying to get an A player. And I know some of the founders I talk with make the mistake of hiring someone from a big company and then they're just so disappointed. But that person was used to being supported by all of these great things that a big company has, right? And they're not scrappy and they don't know how to, you know, figure it out for themselves and just get it done. And so that oftentimes doesn't really serve very well because it's just, you know, they may, may have been a good seller in that environment of big company, but they're not going to be in a smaller company. So we've all made our share of mistakes early on with our, with our sales team, but you finally hit your stride at some point. So tell us about where you feel like, wow, the products, we've got them, you know, and now we've got some sellers who are really doing good. And then bring us from there back up to where you are now, where you actually decided to verticalize. Yeah. So you, by the way, you make a great point about, you know, big company versus small company. And, you know, <clears throat> sometimes you get fooled, you know, cause everyone, the allure of working for an early stage company is always kind of clouds, you know, even the person who's you're hiring's judgment, right? Their ability yeah. to be self-aware and realize that they're, you know, being part of an early stage company, you don't have that support infrastructure and uh, there's just a different mentality. And yeah, so I just want to underscore that point. Um, so look, I think uh, there's a term in the, in, a, in the product world, which is product market fit, right? And ultimately, um, which, you know, took us a while to get there. Ultimately, that's what's needed, right? We got, we got there on the bank side. Banks wanted retailers to fund their rewards program and we could figure that out, that was great. Uh, that got us to a certain point as we got the rights to to this data, which was, again, it's all opted in permission, aggregated, anonymized uh, data sets. But ultimately, you know, we, we anchored it on these loyalty programs and came up with a business model that was not only compliant, but actually you know, giving value back to cardholders. As we started moving into the data side today, 85 percent of our revenue is from that side of the business. We had to get to product market fit there and we experimented a lot. And that's where you know, the access to this data by consulting firms to help retailers. You saw, you mentioned the CNBC piece that was me and the CEO of the National Retail Federation. The, the underlying thesis of the retailer having that visibility of what's happening outside their stores is a product market fit. As long as they could, the data is usable, right, for a retailer and they can get it easily. And so we had to solve for that. Um, consulting firms that use it in the ways that I was describing earlier. 
the media side of the business where, as I described earlier, being able to show an advertiser, I'll give you one example. Imagine a, a retailer um, or a restaurant called Burger King. Imagine being able to get this kind of data in near real time every week showing the, you know, where their customers, their Gen Z customers, their millennial customers, their lower versus higher income customers, where are they going? Where, where's their share of stomach going outside of Burger King? Um, and there's some really interesting surprises um, where, you know, a burger chain loses share. They think it's to another burger chain. Well, it turned out uh, Popeye's stole a whole bunch of share when they introduced the chicken sandwich from the burger restaurants. Well, that's an important epiphany. So imagine having that at the store level, not just at the city level. Yeah. And then imagine being able to take action on those insights, not just to look at the problem or opportunity, but uh, take action. So Burger King, let's say, is losing share to Popeye's. What do they do? They could introduce their own chicken sandwich, but they can also buy media using our data that shows the pre high presence of buyers and level of spend of Popeye's customers to win them back. And maybe they highlight menu options in their advertising that appeals to people that are at Popeye's um, so that they can win them back. So those kind of insights where they're seeing what's going on outside their stores and then taking action on them through media buying, through merchandising decisions, through real estate decisions, um, loyalty program marketing, any number of things um, is the product market fit. So once you figure that and, you know, doubling down on that, getting salespeople that know how to sell into that, into those domains, and then ultimately just, putting all your energy into that. And I think the mistakes that I've made over the years, that one of the biggest mistakes, even as we started to see some traction, is that you have to focus, right? Uh, obvious point here, focus. And do <laughs> one thing do one thing really well before you start chasing the next thing. And because, because entrepreneurs and founders tend to be creative and tend to be interested in, you know, the next innovation, and I'm certainly one of those, you know, it's easy to say, okay, I'm delivering data, but how can I, how can I do something over here? And and I think you know that's the that's where the maturity of me as a CEO and the maturity of the company, um, you know, has allowed us to say no to a lot of things. Let's do this really really well. Amazon did books before they sold everything else. McDonald's did hamburgers before they did salad bars. So get it get it right first, and that's what we've done. Um, and we're really excited about that. Yeah. So in those early days um, and kind of in the middle too, you had a few sellers who were out helping with those two, the rewards programs and then the data, right? And you you found some good ones. It sounds like you got that good one from your customer um, and they got over it evidently. So that's good. Um, and then you started to grow your sales team. <laughs> How did you know when you needed to really increase the size of your sales team to fit your market? Right. Um, and I want to just also, as I lead into answering the question, point out something else. And this is where um, there's a tendency sometimes with companies that are early stage, and we definitely did this, to exaggerate, right? You feel a little insecure. You feel a little insecure, right? You're out there selling in, and then there's these, these embedded competitors, and sometimes earlier stage competitors are also BSing and exaggerating. So you feel like, well, I have to exaggerate. And ultimately looking back on that, that was the wrong decision. I mean, it, you know, obviously, you know, everyone talks about over, over delivering and under promising, but it's truly important. Our best partnerships, and this is where the right sellers know, have to know how to do this, is to sell with integrity, sell what you have, 
and and if you do that, and I remember uh, some years ago there was one client of ours that um, you know wanted to sell our products into a certain vertical, and um, you know it, we didn't understand that vertical, and the only way to really engage with them was literally full transparency, let them come in, see exactly everything we have. And there were people around me saying, really, you're going to have that level of transparency? And I said, yeah, we have to. And we did. And it's it's a huge partnership, double digit millions of dollars a year. And it's one of our best over you know the last seven, eight years. And so we, you know, I can, I just want to say that because as we hired salespeople, the, the salespeople that are more, you know, sometimes are, you know, in an earlier stage environment are going to be tempted to exaggerate. And that's a lesson learned to try not to do that. Um, so yeah, well, so not only do they exaggerate, sometimes they sell stuff we don't even have yet, right? So we have, you know, we had to be careful, right? And it's I don't mind. There's always a little bit of selling ahead because you're always, you know, you're always and you have to have a roadmap. And as long as you tell people it's a roadmap, but when you know you when people when when you when you go beyond that, that's when things get difficult because then someone's got to deliver it. And then you build a reputation uh, uh, where you're not delivering and exceeding expectations and no one wants that. And today I can say we, you know, there's always a hiccup here, hiccup there, but we are, it's a great thing to go to sleep at night and know that your clients love what you do and what you're delivering. So I think the salespeople that we hired, obviously it's a journey. Um, when someone knows the domain that we're selling into, it's like gold, right? They can talk the talk. When you have a salesperson who is a functional salesperson, they're able to sell the product, but they don't really understand the domain the client can see that a mile away. And this is, you know, obvious comment to everyone on the on the podcast, but, you know, being consultative, building trust, it's all about trust, right? The, a, a customer doesn't buy from you unless they trust, not only that you're saying it's true, but that you're gonna make them look good. You're not gonna get them fired. You're gonna actually do the opposite. You're gonna set them up. And that has to come from genuine trust. And that genuine trust is much easier to do when someone comes from the domain that they're selling into, or at least has experience working with them. So that's what I would say is most critical. And, and we still, we're still working on that internally where, you know, you can smell a salesperson a mile away that doesn't really get your business. It's the nomenclature. It's how you talk about the business. So uh, that's certainly one big criteria. Also, sometimes you, you know, there's this idea, oh, this person's such a great salesperson. Let's pay him a big or her a big base. Um, because it's necessary, a big mistake. You know, you want someone that believes enough in what you do where they can make three times the salary or two times the salary. And uh, you, may, you may have to give them a bigger, you know, advance period of time, um, a draw against commission because of the longer sales cycles. But um, I think you want people that are hungry and you want people that believe that they can make a lot of money with you and not sit uh, on their laurels because they're getting a big base salary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So you're adding people to this team carefully. Some stayed, some didn't, and that's all good. And you got to where you are today with how many, uh, what does your go-to-market team look like now? How many sellers, customer success, like what is it, what does it look like now? And, and then again, review with us how you decided to made that decision to verticalize and why that was a good decision. Sure. So today, um, our sales team is about 12 for new logos to use, you know, use the buzzword, you know, new, new, new clients. That's right. And then we have, you know, probably if I include this, a few people that do more sort of servicing day to day. But if I look at the client management team, we call them client success. Um, broadly, it's probably about 10. So it's about 20, 25 uh, total. 
Um, and then we've got the three verticals. You know, one thing that I did want to mention is that, you know, and this is again, academic, but the other mistake that we've made over the years is just knowing when to cut loose somebody. And, um, you know, in the early days, it's easy legitimately to say, you know, can we really hold someone accountable for, to meet their quota when it's so early? And until you have a bunch of other people that you can point to to say they did it, yeah. it's a little difficult to say, well, you haven't performed, right? So you're looking at more like leading indicators to suggest whether someone's going to work out. But as we become more mature, you've got to have the discipline to say, and in our company, it might be you know, you have a quarter where someone does 60% or less of their quota. That happens two quarters in a row, that unless there's some extenuating circumstance, which there might be, you've got to give them uh, clarity that they got to deal with it on the third quarter or, you know, this is not the, maybe, maybe not the right fit um, for, for both, for either uh, the person or the company because they want to make money. Um, so the look, the verticalization thing was just, it was a natural evolution. I think I mentioned we hired this guy who worked in the bank it was kind of magical because he was able to sell into banks and talk the talk. You know, today uh, we have someone that runs media marketing and he he understands media marketing more than anybody in the company. So he can sell into uh, agencies and marketing companies. He um, was part of a company that was sold to Nielsen. So there's nobody that can, you know, talk uh, with authority more than him in that space. And he's got a team behind him. And that's a beautiful thing. And I can, you know, not have to be involved in a lot of those sales. And they probably, he probably doesn't want me involved. So that's good. Uh, the guy who runs the consult, and, and so that's an example of verticalization where it made sense because the sales team without that verticalized, you know, an ad agency, a marketing company, a TV network, it just doesn't work unless someone can understand their business. I'll give you one other example. <coughs> one of the other verticals I mentioned was consulting firms. And um, I mentioned some of the names that we work with today. For a long time, I was upset because we were able to sell into those firms, Deloitte, Accenture, Bain, McKinsey, into their centralized data team. Um, we're selling it on the quality of the data solutions that we have because the data is incredibly well correlated with publicly available data. <coughs> Excuse me. But what was very clear to me is that was only $3 million of revenue that this should be a $10 million business. And the only way to make that happen was to go beyond the centralized data team that was our client and sell into the global account teams that work with the Walmarts and Burger Kings and, and uh, Hilton's of the world. Um, and because they would then be able to take, take our solutions and sell it into their clients or use it for the benefit of their clients where the industry practice leads. None of that would happen without domain experts. So we hired a guy who um, came out of Equifax who had worked in the consulting space for years and the guy's fantastic and he's out there he knows how to work within the consulting firm environment not only does he know the environment of that of the consulting firm but he understands who they're dealing with meaning their retail clients and can show how our data can solve problems for retailers um, whether it's real estate problems where to open stores m a what companies to buy merchandising marketing that's that was the secret so Domain expertise, verticalization of this of the go-to-market was a big unlock for us. Yeah, yeah. So it seemed like it just came naturally because it started with this one expert, and then you recognized, oh, that that actually really worked. And then you said, yeah, to sell into this other vertical, we're going to have to have people like that as well who really know how to talk the language of the people that they're serving. 
Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, we are just running out of time here. It's been fascinating, you know, to hear about what you've done in your market space and you just keep innovating. So let's just wrap it up with this, um, you know, this special collaboration that you have with CNBC and the National Retail Federation and this retail monitor that you came up with um, to get this data in real time, because that's it's just fascinating. Yeah, that was a really exciting journey. We started to engage with the National Retail Federation a year ago, just around the time when they were looking to expand their expertise and domain knowledge around data and specifically purchase data. The National Retail Federation is the largest retail association in the world. They do a bunch of things, provide different benefits to their members, which are the who's who of retail. They have 400 members. The CEOs of Walmart and Home Depot and others are on their board. So member benefits. They have a huge conference at the Javits Center in January called The Big Show. They advocate on Capitol Hill on behalf of the retail industry, but they're also a voice of the consumer economy, which is obviously the underpinning of the retail industry. And forever, they were using uh, a fairly uh, static source of data, which is the government data that's released by the Census Bureau every month called the Monthly Retail Trade Survey, which is literally a survey of 7,500 businesses that eventually is 13,000 businesses that they then analyze and come up with a view of what happened last month that is the input to the GDP. So we were like, well, you know, you're using 13,000 businesses with a survey a static report, or you can use 140 million consumers actual swipes to give you better visibility. So the NRF loved it. They started to test our test the data again, anonymized, aggregated, uh, and saw how incredibly well correlated it is with the census data, but also with 10Ks and 10Qs. And then they realized that not only is it incredibly accurate, but they can get it instead of once a month, they can get it weekly. Uh, they can get it earlier than the census. We can slice and dice it by you know, and gender and household income and other ways, um, all kinds of things. That's to replace, essentially replace the government data with our data as their source of truth. That's what the retail monitor is. The real payoff, though, is that with the NRF, we're going to bring our insight solutions to their members, to the retailers, so that, you know, a, a retailer could get insights literally at the store level every week on what their customer is doing outside their store, and then the ability to act on those insights like I was describing earlier. So it's a huge partnership. And if it were only that, that would be game changing. But the partnership is not just Affinity and the NRF. It's with CNBC. They're a partner in the retail monitor. So we couldn't be more excited. Wow. Well, I will definitely put the link to that um, that clip for the news, you know, for CNBC Squawk Box. I'll put that in the show notes so that everybody can take a look at that. And I just want to thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Uh, tell people where they can find you. Sure. Um, our, our website is affinitysolutions.com, A-F-F-I-N-I-T-Y, solutions, plural, uh, .com. Um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly happy to, uh, you can reach me on LinkedIn, uh, Jonathan Silver. So feel free to reach out there and happy to talk to anyone where I can be helpful. We only have one rule. If you reach out to Jonathan on LinkedIn, you have to tell him that you heard about him on my show. <laughs> that would be great. And this was, a, this was a pleasure to be on your podcast. This was really enjoyable. You had great questions. Thank you for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. 
If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe, and we'll see you next week.